0: Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrin. We're pleased you're with us today. We return to our fascinating conversation of executive compensation committee trends and developments with our great friends Tim Cotter of Sullivan Cotter and my longtime partner Ralph DeYoung of McDermott. In the first part of our conversation, we heard from Tim and Ralph on topics such as the committee's agenda salary increase data, discretionary awards, and the 800-pound gorilla in the room, the role of the Compensation Committee in Incentivizing Legally Compliant Behavior. But We've got a whole list of other issues to go through with Ralph and Tim, and let's dive into it right now. Tim and Ralph, are you ready? Let's take a look at the great resignation and the impact that all of the industry and morale pressures is having. To what extent are comp committees considering special compensation arrangements for recruitment and retention purposes? If they're not, should they be? Will they be enough?
1: Well, I think, Michael, I think it has uh, two parts. As as we mentioned last time, you know, half of health systems uh, have uh, special programs that they use to support attraction uh, and retention and again those are sign-on uh, relocation awards enhanced sign-on bonuses uh, special incentive awards so that's on the individual side the other side is what are we seeing going on in terms of incentive measures and incentive measures that focus on on environment so we are seeing workplace related measures Uh, appear in our incentive plans. We're seeing uh, employee safety measures appear in our incentive plans. So it's certainly a work and obviously, uh, employee satisfaction uh, and engagement measures have always been in our incentive plans and are starting to get even more weight. So I think that's how I see those two coming forward in the great resignation. Our pulse surveys tell us that about 35% of health systems tell us that their turnover among executives is higher than it has been historically. So while that's not a good number, it doesn't seem to be that it's a, you know a runaway great resignation across the industry.
2: My take on this, I agree with everything Tim has just said, and, and certainly true of my experience with compensation committees uh, these days. But my take on this is that special compensation arrangements are necessary for recruitment and retention. And a lot of committees... Have given the CEO um, some special grant of authority to make adjustments between meetings of the committee. The committees that meet the most frequently, I'd say, are those that meet six to eight times a year. But still, it can be, even for the committees that meet most frequently, it can be a couple months before the next meeting. And it can be difficult for committees composed of very busy. Individuals to meet more frequently and on a special occasion to review a special compensation arrangement that's considered absolutely necessary and very urgent. So, a lot of compensation committees have granted to the CEO the authority to make special compensation arrangements between meetings up to a certain percentile in the marketplace. And if they exceed that percentile, often the 75th, sometimes the 90th percentile. And if they exceed that, to go to the committee chair with that information and the rationale for making that compensation recommendation or proposal or or decision, and then the chair can decide either I approve this or I would like to convene my committee to review and approve this and put it on the record as to the rationale, et cetera. We have worked to put in place at a lot of organizations that kind of authority to act between meetings because things are moving so quickly. Yeah, we've seen that as well.
0: Let's move on to another issue, kind of into the soft tissue issues that sometimes get on the agenda of the comp committee. At least in my perspective, there's no question that the ESG themes, whatever you may think of their legitimacy, are absolutely beginning to impact the healthcare sector generally, and nonprofit healthcare in particular, and increasingly in a big way. We have, for example, most recently the Joint Commission weighing in with some ESG accreditation-related principles, and perhaps most significantly Moody's indicating that they are now scoring on an ESG level in not-for-profit healthcare. And then you add on top of that, Issues as you guys have been talking about, uh, workforce culture, DEI, and growth initiatives. So, what are you seeing in terms of the use of performance measures for, again, what I call these softer tissue issues that nevertheless are absolutely in the committee's uh, scope of responsibility? Ralph?
2: We're seeing quite a change in incentive measures for compensation programs in health systems over the last three to four years. We're seeing a a greater emphasis on growth, on finding alternative revenue streams, on increasing physician alignment, on metrics for whether you're effective in retaining your workforce. So those aren't ESG measures, uh, but we are seeing a lot of that as a big point of emphasis in incentive arrangements. On ESG-type measures themselves, I would say that the most forward-looking health systems are including incentive measures on equity of care, how they measure the way in which they impact the delivery of care and the health outcomes to various groups in their communities, to people of color, to Asian, Latino communities, and they are also placing a much greater emphasis on impacting the social determinants of health, making a difference in the community in ways that will ultimately improve the health of those communities before they ever come to the hospital. So we are seeing a fair amount of it in that sense, in incentive measures, but I would say not to the extent that we are seeing measures that are intended to result in
1: greater financial stability right now. I would agree with Ralph. A couple other areas that we're seeing and whether you treat these as on the employee population, but I think clearly they're ESG type measures that we're seeing, certainly a a significant increase in the measurement of employee safety and well-being and also DE and I. So we're seeing uh, you know a couple things there. As it takes us back to the uh, issue of uh, whether how we measure compliance, one of the things I find interesting is you you look at the number of areas that we're trying to measure and we're trying to get people to have an incentive focus on. I mean, There's a statement, if you have too many measures, you have no measures. So I'm not sure how far we can go with this, but the number of measures that are coming in, especially these new uh, ESG uh, measures and fairness of health care, the number of measures we're trying to use uh, continues to grow. And it's a real challenge for the committee to keep them to the ones that they consider most most critical.
0: And it will be interesting when we have this conversation uh, in September of 2023, whether as i expect they will the moody's scoring and and it's actually ask um, you know adding a business kicker to the esg issue whether the moody scoring will change the thoughts of the committee in terms of incentivizing a broader range of esg issues that we that will need to watch but tim your comment prompted me to ask a more i think it's a more difficult and broader issue it's something i think we've talked about On this program in prior years. And that's the role of discretion in business judgment and goal setting and incentive award adjudication. On my side of the table, courts and regulators are becoming more closely focused on the reasonableness of discretion and the adequacy of business judgment. What are you guys seeing?
1: Well, right now, you know, if you look at it, uh, at least mid-year dates, data, about half the health systems, large health systems either have applied discretion as they made their last incentive awards or planning to apply discretion. So discretion, it's down a little bit, but it's still quite common in the practices of health systems. I think the helpful part, and this is where you get back to the regulatory oversight, is increasingly health systems are establishing parameters in advance as to how the discretion will be applied. So that's really critical then just to say, gee, everybody worked hard, so we're going to give you incentives, as as Ralph talked about uh, in the last uh, uh, section. I guess to me, I would love that these things all become formulaic But I think we can see in the nature of the environment, it's not formulaic. So I think the committee is well served to think through their comfort with discretion. And if they are comfortable with it, then to be pretty clear about where they're going to make discretionary judgments and how they're going to make those.
2: I think this is a huge and difficult issue for committees right now, largely because this is the third straight year of incredible uncertainty we had the pandemic year then we had last year which was a pandemic year but not a huge financial impact year but it was a a patient care impact year last year and now we have both a pandemic influenced financial crisis for healthcare and a workforce stability issue and all metrics going down so committees are being faced with three straight years of either full discretion or partial discretion uh, having to be exercised to be competitive. And it's causing a fair amount of turmoil within the compensation committee these days. I think a lot of committees have been saying, okay, we're all right with discretion one more time because we need to do that to be competitive. But next year, we really want to get back to the more disciplined approach of metrics, management, you better do a good job of kind of factoring in the risk into the metrics going into 23, because we don't really want to operate within this total discretionary environment any longer than we already have. So I think the approach by compensation committees is fairly clear for 22, as being a total discretionary year because they have to be to be competitive and to retain their workforce. But the environment is going to be very uncertain going into 23 as to how that all gets factored into newly developed incentive plans.
0: Well, let me ask you this, Ralph, and I'll put you on the spot again. To what extent has that changed the recommendations that you have made to your clients? on their record keeping, their minute taking, their identifiable measures that support informed discretion. How do you build how do you encourage them to build up the file on these?
2: Well, Tim has mentioned facts and circumstances a couple times in our our earlier broadcast and, and in this one. And I think it's all about good documentation of that dialogue between the committee and the CEO and documenting those facts and circumstances, whether it's for the purpose of having individualized approaches or what we call segmenting to have greater compensation amounts for your absolutely critical leaders, or whether it's because we may not have the financial results to pay incentives, but we have to do so for competitive reasons. Whatever the key issue is, documenting in the minutes The deliberative process of the committee, the dialogue with the CEO, and then the the critical factors that the committee relied upon to exercise that discretion and make those approval decisions uh, is a very important procedural step here. Uh, There's just no substitute for having a, a good record of that.
0: Tim, let me pick on something that I know you've raised previously, and that's the question of whether organizational structural considerations should be considered by the comp committee. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Well, I think, you know, if you, if you look at what the criticism is of emerging health systems are is that they merge and they really do very little to reduce costs. And so our focus here is on the executive committee. And again, I mean, on the compensation committee and executives, and this may not be the specific charge of each compensation committee, uh, but our survey results of large systems tell us today that more than half of health systems are rethinking their organizational structure so that they get faster and more aligned decision-making at a lower cost. So systems are assessing How many executives do we need? What's the structure and design of their roles? How many layers do we have? And what is the span of control of those executives? Those kind of studies oftentimes can produce some very good cost savings, the kind of cost savings that are needed either to reduce our cost of care or to fund the challenges we face to maintain our workforce. So I think if we look at the challenge to the health system today, the modern health system, they've certainly merged, they've certainly grown but have they been able to pull off the cost reduction work and especially on the shared service areas so that the the goal of efficiency that was promised in the merger discussions comes through. And I think that's the challenge. And one spot where you're seeing a focus is on the executive workforce specifically.
0: The antitrust lawyers will love you, Tim. Let's kind of turn to a super sensitive issue, but one that I don't think boards can avoid We've all seen the media stories of late that are critical in general of whether large health systems in the nonprofit health systems are addressing their charitable mission. And layered on top of that are always references to the compensation of CEOs whose organizations are being criticized for straying from the mission. Tim, let's start with you. What's the role of the Comp Committee in offering compensation-based options to help organizations focus more on the mission and, to be honest, why those organizations deserve tax-exempt status?
1: Well, I think there's two sides to this issue. So the first is, you know, what do we pay the executives for? So, you know, as we start to look at our measurements in the incentive plans, which increasingly for large systems today are the becoming the bulk of what their compensation is, we better see measures of uh, community benefit. We better see measures of health status improvement in indigent communities. We need to see those things and we can't have 92% of the weight on the financial performance data. So the first is looking what are we trying to accomplish here? And hopefully that accomplishment is a broader based. So that gives us that gives us a, a good focus, but also gives us some defensibility. Although, again, uh, sometimes it's difficult to fight with people who buy ink by the barrel. But the other side of it is um, we have to prepare our board, our full board for the inevitable blowback we're going to get on executive compensation sooner or later every system goes through it and i think the committee's job there is to make sure that the board understands the levels that are paid in pretty detailed disclosure of the key people the way in which it is paid the measures on which it's paid what those Form 990 disclosures are actually going to look like because some of the roll-up effect that you get that produces numbers that are really well beyond the annualized of value. And then there should be a plan for responding to the media coverage. The worst thing that can have happen is when the media calls and one of the board members, especially an influential community member, says, gee, I had no idea we were paying this. <laughs> we never should have. So I think as we look at it, It's difficult to explain in the media what we do. I think the best response, obviously, is we have a best practices approach. The members who make the decisions are independent and we're happy with the outcomes and just leave it at that. But we do need to be prepared so we don't have any of our board members ambushed. Uh, by the media in this regard without the proper background uh, and understanding. I would also suggest uh, that we go and actually put together a formal, uh, just like a publicly held company would, a statement of what our executive compensation program is so that, in fact, uh, any uh, any board member should have it so that they know what are the performance measures, what are the target points, what's the proportion of cash versus benefits, salary versus incentives. And so I
0: think that's a very important recommendation. It takes us back to the Mike Hatch in Minnesota days where he was conducting business judgment reviews uh, and business practice reviews and caught board saying, I have no idea what we pay our, our, our CEO. Ralph, and you're closing in on 40 years of practice. I suspect you've seen multiple cycles of this mission related focus. But maybe the same message being used over the years, some variation of, but we plow all our profits back into the mission. Is it time for a new message given the levels of compensation that our CEOs are making? And if so, what are you recommending to your committees on what that message might be?
2: I agree with the observation that committees need to be ready to respond effectively to the media or other questions that have the potential for harming the reputation of the organization. And I also agree that the job of leading healthcare organizations, especially very large and complex healthcare organizations is more difficult today and more difficult because of the pandemic and more difficult because of all the challenges that we've talked about, more difficult than ever. But that really doesn't come through in answering the Form 990 questions It really doesn't come through in most responses to media questions about compensation. I agree with you that it is something that could be explained much more effectively through an emphasis on what it really takes to lead organizations, healthcare organizations these days. But here's the problem I have with it. Every defense, every response, every statement only throws more fuel on that fire once it's begun. If you're being asked about compensation, if you're in a position of having to respond, the response typically does not put out the fire. It typically adds to the fire. So I I worry about having more explanation, more responses. I think simple short statements of response just to make sure that the information is clear i think that's the most effective response strategy but i think compensation committee compensation committees should remember that the most damaging stories in the media on compensation are those that have a second element to them what i might call the hook of the story and it occurs when the hospital or health system has just gone through layoffs. It occurs when the health system or hospital has just announced a big financial loss. It occurs when there has just been some other damaging story that gets paired with a story about executive compensation. That, I think, is the factor here. That compensation committees need to remember before they make their decisions on pay, you know, what is the reputational impact going to be? Because I, I think once it occurs, once the questions occur, to just come up with lots of, of additional explanations uh generally
1: does not take care of the issue. No, I would I would agree. I wouldn't bother with the explanations. I would just say again. Uh, We have independent members make these decisions. We look at the best date and information and we follow best practices. Have a nice day. I mean, I think that's all you can do. On the other hand, uh, you know, that the timing issue is really critical. But with the vagaries of 990, you could have made the decision in a very good year, but the reporting hits in a very bad year. So again, it's why I think, you know, you, you can only have one or two speakers in this regard. Uh, but secondly, you want your board members to understand how we got there so that they don't add any fuel to the fire. But I think it's going to, you know, when you start looking at the compensation levels that are out there and eight figure CEO compensation figures in not-for-profits are not unknown, we're going to have a bigger challenge. And again, depending, you know, with some of the, the concerns about the cost of health care The focus on the community benefit, the charity care issue, we may see more focus on executive compensation than just the tax penalties that we pay today.
0: Last question to both of you. We've talked a lot over the today and the day prior about what I would see as the expanding role of the compensation committee, not just the incentives, but also getting into search and succession and retention workforce culture, compliance. What do you recommend to committees about looking at the actual charter for its continued relevance? Is is it time to open up the executive comp committee charter and maybe have that big discussion at the board level about who does what? Ralph, what's your thinking?
2: I think you're right about that. Uh, almost every committee that I work with these days has reviewed and updated its charter in the past year. Um, it's it's not so much the scope of the charter I, I, uh, and, the, and the committee's responsibilities. Uh, I'd say that those who did not explicitly mm-hmm. say that executive succession planning was part of its mandate have certainly added that in the past year. That's probably been the biggest change in the past year. I think more of the focus has been on the role of the committee relative to other committees of the board and relative to the full board itself. I think that the committee's work has gotten so important and so confidential. And what's needed to qualify for that federal protection known as the rebuttable presumption of reasonableness under the intermediate sanctions tax law rules That is so incredibly important that taking steps to make sure that the committee has approval authority relative to the board uh, has been an important thing to confirm in a lot of charters. And of course, that is paired with good upstream appropriate reporting to the full board. But a, a lot of charters have been clarified in the past year on those authority issues relative to other committees and to the full board?
1: I'd answer that question just a little bit differently, Michael, not so much in terms of the charter, but where did, where is committee time going? And the amount of committee time spent on succession planning, risk assessment, leadership opportunities is certainly growing. And at the other end to free up that time, some of the lower non-value added, activities that committees used to do. Some would be looking at 150 uh, executives in the course of a year. That increasingly is being just dealt with by as long as they fall under the 75th percentile, we accept them as a reasonable compensation and we don't need to review them other than periodic disclosure. I would say that's really the two sides. I think the committees, as we talked about earlier, are really struggling to complete all the activities they have Certainly, the big growth area for me is on the uh, executive development retention side, succession planning, risk assessment, and to f- trying to free up time to be able to do those things. So, that's so it's not necessarily the charter, but to me, what's the absolute impact of their role? It's right there. That's the change. Well said.
0: Guys, we've got the two minute warning flashing on us. So, the last question to you as we wrap up. Tim, what's your key compensation committee takeaway or takeaways from this most recent time period of committee meetings? You
1: know, I just think, uh, Michael, it's going to be this, the committee is going to have to have the delicate balance between responding to market practice, controlling costs, supporting equitable pay practices across the system, uh, while creating desirable opportunities for executives and building a strong pipeline of leadership. Um, It's I wish there was a simple answer. There isn't. It's going to be facts and circumstances uh, in each individual organization. And unfortunately, with the diverging uh, financial realities uh, across systems, uh, two systems which on the surface look alike may have to make very different answers or come up with very different answers. So I wish I could be more specific. That's the way I see it, though.
0: Very helpful. Ralph, your thoughts? I agree with Tim
2: that that there is no single approach that's going to work at multiple systems. Each one is facing its own challenges and will need its unique solutions to those challenges. So I would say that the judgment of the committee members, the judgment of the committee is more important than ever before. I see committees engaging in more frequent meetings, more dialogue with the CEO, and a heightened awareness of the reputational impacts of their decisions. But that being said, they need to respond to today's crises first and then think more farsightedly about what's next. I think it's getting through this really turbulent time of balancing, as Tim said, these twin challenges of workforce stability and financial stability And trying to figure out where to strike that balance, because those two things are certainly in in tension with each other. It's a really huge challenge for compensation committees and for CEOs to work together and to address these challenges. But I see compensation committees digging in. I I think they're rising to the challenge. I see a stronger response and more digging into these issues uh, than ever before. And that's exactly what's needed right now.
0: Tim and Ralph, just fabulous as always, and clearly, we're going to have to come back and talk about two issues that you've raised before, board compensation, committee compensation, and physician compensation oversight. Well, if you're like me, you've run out of pages on your yellow pad, which is probably full of notes and observations on executive compensation that you can't wait to bring back to the compensation committee. We're indebted to Tim Cotter and Ralph DeYoung for their extraordinary observations on the state of the Executive Compensation Committee of Healthcare Corporate Boards. And I think you get a better sense from their conversation why this committee is among the most demanding in terms of both engagement and required technical sophistication of all board committees.
2: This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, Distribution or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.